Well, we want to continue to worship the Lord now through the reading and preaching of his word, and so I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. It's no secret that churches are struggling in our country and also around the world. In many places, church attendance and ministry involvement are on the decline, while church closures, leadership scandals, ministry burnout are ever increasing. Surveys regularly tell us that professing Christians, excuse me, are looking more and more like the world, that there's little difference between the lifestyles of the unchurched and the church, especially in the West, where many Christians seem to lack the conviction to be different. At the same time, personal evangelism is almost non-existent in most churches. A passion for reaching the two billion unreached peoples around our world is rare, and financial giving to local ministries and global missions is also frequently down. Recent studies have also found that the majority of Christians in North America do not have the most basic biblical and theological understanding, many of them holding to historically heretical beliefs and don't even know it, which is leaving the church increasingly defenseless against the intellectual and moral attacks it's facing, not able to defend historic Christian teaching on hot-button issues like like poverty and racism and sexuality and gender and sanctity of life issues. Now, this certainly isn't the case everywhere. In other places around the world, churches are facing very different difficulties, like a huge shortage of biblically trained leaders, uh, laws against proselytizing your non-Christian neighbors, many living under atheistic dictatorships. Over 360 million Christians today are living in countries where there is severe persecution, a number that has been dramatically increasing over the last few years. In fact, today, more Christians are murdered for their faith than at any time in the past 30 years. Churches everywhere, in different ways, are struggling. And yet, as we saw last week in Revelation chapter 2, this is really nothing new. No, from the very beginning, churches have struggled with, with pressures from without and problems from within. So much so that Christ sent seven messages to seven churches in Asia Minor to express his concern for them. Last week, we considered his communication to four of those churches in chapter two, and now this week, we will consider his communication to three more in chapter three, all of which are really representative of local assemblies throughout church history. Their external difficulties with the culture and their internal disloyalties to Christ are sadly common in churches in every period and every place. And so what we read about Christ saying then, it resonates with our situation now, or at least it should to some degree. We, we recognize that Christ's concern, as we saw last week, for careless churches, confronted churches, compromised churches, and corrupted churches in the first century is the same concern he has for churches in the 21st century. And he therefore calls all churches after every message he gives, remember, to hear what the Spirit says. 
That includes us. That includes Church of the Open Bible today. And so as we now consider chapter 3 together, let's be sure to listen carefully. First of all, about Christ's concern for comatose churches. So chapter 3, verse 1, we read the first message to the first church. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As I pointed out last week, the angel of the church would seem to be better translated the messenger of the church, referring not to a a supernatural being, but to the church's spiritual leader, since the individual here is connected with the churches and called to repent with them. And certainly angels have no sin to repent of, so this is more likely speaking to a leader, like a pastor. He's addressing them, and then they would address the church. We also noted last week in chapter 2 that each message of Christ follows a similar pattern. First, the specific church is addressed. Then there's a vivid description of Christ given. Then for most churches, there's both a commendation and a criticism. And then finally, there's a challenge, most often for repentance, but also a confirmation of future rewards. Church, Christ, commendation, criticism, challenge, confirmation. That's the pattern. And we see it again here in this fifth message to the pastor and to the people in the church in Sardis. Following the the main road in the region that makes a loop through all of these cities that are, are mentioned here, Sardis was 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, the fourth city mentioned in chapter 2. It was a wealthy city acquiring revenue from its wool and dyeing industry as well as minting of gold and silver. Characterized by luxury and loose living, its citizens also practiced pagan worship, home to many of the mystery cults and secret societies, along with another great temple to the goddess Artemis. This was a very spiritually dark environment where a small church had been planted in order to give a flicker of spiritual light. It's interesting, ruins of a church building are actually found in this city just adjacent to the great temple of Artemis, which shows just how precarious their position really was. Although there's interestingly no mention in these verses of persecution like there was in the former churches. And it seems to indicate that they were living in relative peace. Well, it was to this small but serene church that Christ now speaks, describing himself as him who has the seven spirits of God, which we saw in chapter one is is referring to the Holy Spirit. 
The seven stars, he says, which we saw in chapter 120, are the messengers of the church. And, and both symbols represent the Lord's authority over the church, which, which was important to establish here because the message he had for the church in Sardis was not going to be easy to hear. He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Yikes. Strong language indeed. While being known by other Christians as being a, a thriving outwardly assembly, the church was known by Christ to in fact be an inwardly dying assembly. Like many of churches today, there was lots of activity, but very little spiritual authenticity. Much ministry going on, but not a whole lot of maturity. There were significant programs, but they lacked any real spiritual power. It was a lifeless church, physically active, but spiritually asleep. Just like if we're honest, so many churches today. A little boy was once visiting his grandparents' church, and after the service, they were on their way out, and he noticed that there was this big plaque that had all of the names of people from that church who had died in the world wars. Asking what it was, his, his grandfather replied, well, that's for the members who died in service, to which the little boy said, which service, the morning or the evening? This is nothing unique to this church. There are many dead and dying churches. In his book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, Tom Rayner lists several fatal factors that, according to his research, put once vibrant churches into the grave. Some of them are this, moving the focus of the budget inwards, failing to have regular corporate prayer, allowing the Great Commission to become the Great Omission, obsessing over facilities, and letting the church become preference-driven out of selfishness and personal agendas. I wonder how many of these causes could be true for us. Might we be a church that is outwardly active, but inwardly asleep, slowly heading towards the church graveyard? Well, whatever the diagnosis may be, we could certainly have more spiritual vibrancy. I think we would all agree with that. To be more alive, like, like little Hannah there. <laughs> I think we all would agree that we could have a greater hunger for the reading and preaching of the word, a greater passion for prayer, a stronger commitment to reaching the unreached of our community and world. And so Christ's challenge in the following verses is something that surely we need to take seriously. And so the Lord Jesus exhorts comatose churches to wake up and strengthen what remains, right? There's still some life left in the body, so, so get those muscles moving again. First, remembering, he says, what you've heard and received, that new spiritual life that you have in Christ, and then repenting of your failure to not live out of that new life you have in following Christ. Yes, the church here, it had been doing some, some good works for God for which they were known, but they did not measure up to God's standards. He says, I have not found your works complete. They were done in a spiritual slumber. 
probably because of the relative peace they were experiencing, unlike these other churches. Without any affliction, this church had fallen asleep. And so Christ exhorts them to wake up, or at the end of verse 3, he warns them, I will come like a thief. I will come against you. This word picture would have hit home for these Christian citizens of Sardis, since twice in the city's history it had been unexpectedly conquered by its enemies. Most famously in 549 BC when the Persians suddenly scaled up the cliff to where the city was under cover of darkness. That as a natural citadel, the city was considered unconquerable by its residents. But in their conceit, they failed to remain watchful and awake. And he's telling the church here, don't make the same mistake. Because if they do, not their enemy, but their king will come against them and put an end to their church. We saw last week in chapter 2, if churches remain deadened to Christ too long, he will eventually do away with them. Those local assemblies will not long survive. And listen, this is true for every church in all times. We are always just a generation away from extinction. If a church's members are dead today, it will be done tomorrow. And that is the reason for this strong warning. Whether Christ is speaking about the end of the church in Sardis, in history here, or the end of all things, isn't clear. But the warning is, and the warning is given later, in chapter 16, in the midst of the description of a time of great tribulation, in brackets, there's this warning again to the church, to the original readers. In, in 1615, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be exposed. So notice the promise of, of blessing here for those who wake up. It's the same given in our text, in verse 4, to those in Sardis who were being watchful and were being worthy followers of the king. He says they had not spoiled their garments. Another meaningful in, uh, illustration for a city that was famous for its wool production and so he says because of that, because they were living holy lives in Christ, he says they will walk with me in white. In other words, those who remain spiritually faithful will have a special spiritual fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Now, but also later. Since Christ confirms in the final two verses that those who, who conquer, who overcome in faith, he says that they're pure and they are secure forever. And get this, their names will be, he says, confessed before God the Father one day. When Christ returns, he will say, he over there belongs to me. Her, she belongs to me. And he will, with our own names, make that confession before the Father. And really, what, what greater motivation could we have to wake up and be ready for that final day, unashamed? That is Christ's concern for comatose churches. But he goes on in the next section in chapter 3, 7 to 13 to give his concern for committed 
churches. Verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The city of Philadelphia, meaning brotherly love, was 28 miles south east of Sardis, and it was founded by Attalus Philadelphus, former king of Pergamum in 159 BC. It was a, an agricultural center, and grapes were one of its principal crops. And in keeping with this, Dionysus, the god of wine and pleasure, was the chief deity of this idolatrous city. Philadelphia was also considered a, a cultural gateway to the East. It spread the Greek culture to the non-Greek world, which made the description Christ gives of himself in verse 7 very appropriate and meaningful. He is holy and true and has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Now here is another of the 350 Old Testament quotes and allusions found in the book. It's a reference to Isaiah 22:22, where a faithful man named Eliakim was given authority over the house of David to open the door to whoever and close it using the very same language. And so in the same way, Christ has authority over God's kingdom. And who will be admitted? I have the keys of death and Hades, he stated earlier in chapter 118. But he also had authorities over the affairs of his followers, and particularly their witness. Just as their city was a gateway to the east for the spreading of Greek culture and the Roman Empire, so the church, he says, was a gateway for the spread of the gospel. I've set before you an open door, Christ reminds them in verse 8, which in the New Testament usually refers to a, a providential opportunity for gospel witness, which despite being a little people with little power, Christ says that the Philadelphians had embraced. You've kept my word, most likely referring to the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations. They were an unswerving, an exemplary, mission-oriented church for whom, did you notice, no criticism is given. And I think that's a direct consequence to their commitment to gospel witness. Simply put, they had their priorities straight. They knew that the church exists not ultimately for itself, but for the sake of others. Not ultimately for our own spiritual good, but for the spread of the gospel to those who've never heard. When a church puts that priority into practice, making 
its focus reaching the world rather than pleasing its members. A thousand self-centered problems just disappear in the church. And that's what happened here and why there was no criticism given to them. They understood what William Temple famously said, the church is the only cooperative society in the world that exists for the benefits of its non-members. They got that. And it seems that their focus on missions had kept them from all kinds of problems from within, but not from without. They experienced opposition, we read, especially from the unbelieving Jews. Verse 9 tells us, but, but Christ commends them for their patient endurance, noting in verse 13 how you have not denied my name. Is that not a commendation that all of us would desire? That Christ could say of us, no matter what situation you were in, you did not deny my name. That's what so many in church history have experienced by the grace of God. It, it makes me think of century, second century uh, Christian martyr Polycarp. Before his execution, the, the proconsul pressed him hard, saying, swear and I will release you. He was an old man at this time. The, the proconsul was having pity on him. Just, just deny Christ. Just revile Christ. I'll let you go. To which Polycarp famously responded, 86 years have I served him. He never did me wrong. How could I now blaspheme the king who saved me? If Christ delivered us at the greatest cost, certainly we should never deny him, whatever the cost. But faithfully bear witness to the gospel in whatever opportunities he provides. After all, the rewards of holding fast will make it worth it in the end. Just consider the future blessings that believers are promised in the remainder of this section. First, we read that it will be proven in verse 9 in the future that those who faithfully lived for the Son of God were fully loved by the Son of God. So much so that it, our enemies will, it says, bow at your feet. In other words, there's going to be this great reversal, as we'll see later in, in, in Revelation chapter 20. The irony here is that this is most likely an allusion to Isaiah 60, 14, where believing Jews would have uh, the unbelieving Gentiles bow at their feet. Well, now he's saying to these unbelieving Jews, no, you will be one of the ones bowing at the feet of these believers. But second, we see in verse 10, there will also be protection, not just being proven that God loves us, but protection in the future for all believers. Speaking directly to the church in Philadelphia, but also indirectly to the church in all times, Christ promises, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Now, much has been made of this verse because it refers to the events in chapter 6 and not to 19. Uh, what is called in chapter 7, 14, the Great Tribulation, also known as the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 37 and Daniel's 70th week at the end of Daniel. This is a seven-year period when God's wrath will be poured out on the whole world and when Israel's discipline will be complete. The church we read will be kept from that terrible time of tribulation on earth, which we believe likely is a reference to what is commonly referred to as the rapture. Uh, this is when Christ will catch up the church to be with him in the clouds, as we see in 1 Thessalonians 4. 
And uh, also, this is the very thing that most likely Christ was speaking about in John 14, where he tells the apostles, the beginning of the church, he tells them, I'm going to come again to take you to be with me where I am, which he's speaking of as heaven. Now, many who take the scriptures just as seriously as, as, as I do uh, would disagree with this. They would come to a different conclusion, uh, claiming rather this is a promise to not take the church out of this tribulation via the rapture, but rather take it through the revel- uh, tribulation with protection. But uh, we're not convinced. And I think if you just look at the context here, it seems clearly to be the other. So just in verse 10, we see... Uh, it equates this promise, I think, with what's often called a, a pre-tribulational rapture. It's, it's this, that it doesn't say the church will be kept from the trial of God's wrath while they're in the middle of it. But rather, notice, it says they will be kept from the very hour, from the period in which this happens. Also, we're told that at this time of tribulation that is experienced, Uh, uh, specifically designated for unbelievers, those who dwell on the earth, which countless times over and over again in the book of Revelation is clearly speaking about unbelievers, which would make it strange for those who believe before this happens, the church, to then be in the midst of this time of uh, discipline and wrath. But then finally, Christ goes on to remind the church in verse 11 that I am coming soon, which is another reference, just like in chapter 1, of his imminent coming, which cannot mean here his second coming to the earth that we're going to see later in chapter 19 and 20. Because everything in chapter 6 on has to happen first. And therefore, it seems to make more sense that being kept from the hour of tribulation that is going to come across the whole world means the church is going to be taken out of it by Christ before this period comes about. Truly, then, it can be any moment that Christ will come. Now, uh, we'll touch on this a little bit more as we get later on into chapter 6 and on, but uh, whatever your view is of this, clearly this is a remarkable reward for all who have faith in Christ, all who conquer, as John says. Thirdly, though, he also tells us we will experience not only um, being proven that we are loved by Christ, not only protection from tribulation, but also prominence in the future. Uh, It was customary in Philadelphia to honor great people by placing a great pillar in one of the temples and having that person's name on it. Well, Christ says that in the new Jerusalem, his faithful followers will likewise be honored in the end, somehow in a similar way, with notice, the name of God with the name of uh, the city of God, the New Jerusalem, and the name of Christ himself, placed on us as a permanent sign of our possession by Jesus Christ. It's going to be a way for all of eternity to be reminded we belong to the King. In fact, right at the end of the book, in chapter 22, verse 4, it says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. What a day that will be. Well, that takes us thirdly and finally to Christ's concern for complacent churches that we see in the final verses, starting in in verse 14 of chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. 
I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your oil so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia, the final city in the loop was Laodicea one of the wealthiest commercial centers in Asia that was noted for its banking. It was kind of like the Wall Street of its time, but also prospered from the manufacturing of cloth and the producing of uh, eye medicine, both which will connect later with Christ's challenge. Well, to the church in this wealthy city, the Lord describes himself as the amen, the final word, who is faithful and true, utterly unchangeable, After all, he is the beginning of God's creation or the ruler, the originator of everything. Just like he said in chapter 117, I am the first and the last. Now, what a stark difference that is, this faithful and true Lord Jesus with the church in Laodicea, whom he now criticizes most severely, receiving no commendation at all because of how unfaithful and untrue they were, how far they'd fallen into complacency. Christ convicts them of being lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. A word picture that is so vivid and and, and memorable, it's really become a part of common slang even today. If you want to describe someone who's apathetic, indifferent, half-hearted, you call them lukewarm. Now, the historical background of this is that in Laodicea, uh, it was located in the Lycus Valley, and along with two cities, um, Hierapolis, which was famous for its remedial hot springs, and Colossae, famous for its refreshing, cool springs, one of which supplied the city of Laodicea with its drinking water. By the time it got to the city through miles of aqueducts, the water water was neither hot nor cold. Rather, it was tepid. It was lukewarm, and therefore it was disgusting to drink. And that's why Christ says he's about to spit this tepid church out of his mouth. It disgusts him. Strong language. Uh, The New King James Version is even more vivid. I will vomit you out of my mouth. As one commentator writes, you nauseate me. You make me sick. When I see you, I want to vomit. These are not exactly words of compliment or praise, yet tragically, these are the words spoken by the risen and glorified Christ to his church in Laodicea. Their spiritual condition was nauseating. It made Christ ill. 
This author continues to say, sadly, they were unaware of their true spiritual status. They believed things were fine. But Jesus says, no, you are like the lukewarm, unfit drinking water that your city is infamous for. You are not like the cold, refreshing springs of Colossae or the hot, healing waters of Hierapolis. You are lukewarm, and I will not stomach this. That's the Lord's true feelings about churches who are indifferent to spiritual things, who are ho-hum about corporate worship, who are apathetic about reaching the unreached, who are half-hearted about prayer, who are take-it-or-leave-it about serving others, who are uninterested in studying the scriptures, who are unmoved by the majesty of God. He is disgusted by those who love the world and the things of the world far more than they love the things of God. He is repulsed by those who say they have life in Christ and then live their lives utterly for themselves. He is sickened by those who say they are saved yet show little signs of gratitude and grace. Friends, might that be you? Might that be me? We come to worship here semi-regularly. We give a little here and there. We maybe serve on a committee for a little while. We read our daily bread. We pray before get bed, and, and, and we're just these nice, moral, Christian people. But there's little to no spiritual vibrancy. No noticeable love for the Lord Jesus. We make no sacrifices for our Savior. We only play our part in his mission if it's convenient and comfortable. We're lukewarm, a very dangerous spiritual state. Well, Christ goes on to say that things had got this way in Laodicea because of their wealth and because of their self-sufficiency. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. This is what their city was actually known for. After an earthquake in Laodicea that leveled the city in AD 60, they refused outside help because they were affluent and they were able enough to do it themselves. Well, it seems that the the church had embraced this attitude as well about material and spiritual things. They had everything they wanted. They were comfortable, content Christians living the good life materially and spiritually. Everything the world offers and I get to go to heaven in the end too. Isn't life lovely? Unaware of how bad things actually were. In their eyes, they were blessed beyond measure. But in Christ's eyes, they were spiritually bankrupt. He says, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's the exact opposite of the church in Smyrna. Remember, they were materially poor, but spiritually rich. While the Laodiceans were materially rich and spiritually poor, which you know what is usually the case in church history and for the church in the present day. 
Visit a church in a poor country today and you will likely see a spiritual vibrancy. Well, visit a church in a rich country and you're more likely to see spiritual complacency. Why is that not always, but often the case? Well, it's because with all of our wealth and our ability and our power, we trust in ourselves far more than we trust in God. And we treasure our stuff far more than we treasure God. And so we'd rather be out on the lake on Sunday morning than at worship with God's people on the Lord's Day. We'd rather have our kids play organized sports than have daily family worship. We'd rather stay at home on our screens than go to weekend missions conferences and prayer services. We'd rather take care of all the toys we have in our garage rather than take care of the widows and the orphans. We'd rather spend our retirement playing golf than doing good works for the Lord. This is the unique spiritual plight of prosperous people, like every one of us. Our wealth so easily makes us spiritually poor because we have a million distractions from what matters most. A.W. Tozer once wrote, I look into history, a look into history will quickly convince any interested person that the true church always suffered more from prosperity than from poverty. Her times of greatest spiritual power have usually coincided with her periods of indigence and rejection. With wealth came weakness and backsliding. So, what then can we do? Because surely, to some extent, this describes me and you. Well, Christ's challenge to the complacent church in Laodicea is summed up in verse 19. Be zealous and repent. Change your heart and change your mind about your spiritual life. Take his loving reproof seriously and do whatever it takes to start living zealously for him. Which begins, verse 18, by receiving the spiritual riches, righteousness, and remedies he provides. And it's just here to offer us. Gold refined, white garments, salve to anoint your eyes. All the things that, that, that Laodicea was famous for. They had it materially in abundance, but they needed it spiritually to be zealous. To no longer be Luke warm, but rather live holy and solely for the Lord, who says he is at the door. He's just waiting to have a deeper and dearer fellowship with us if we would let him in. The verse 20 is often used in evangelism as an initiating of faith. The context, it clearly is referring to edification, to the initiation of fellowship with Christ. What a, what a powerful image this is. Here we are just going about living our mostly selfish lives with just a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in here and there. And here's Jesus. And he's knocking on the door and he's saying, don't you get it? There's so much more of me you can have. You, you can know me so much more deeply and dearly. You can live for me so much more holy and solely. You can enjoy me and be satisfied in my presence like you can never imagine that all this stupid worldly junk can do nothing for you. 
I'm right here, Jesus is saying. I'm knocking. Let me in. Here's what I'm offering you. Repent. Admit you have this cold, indifferent heart. Admit your complacency. Admit how your wealth has made you so cold and so distracted. Open the door wide and I will come in. And it's something that he says you'll experience now, ever increasingly, but fully in the future. He promises the one who conquers in faith a privilege that no money can buy, that no material thing in this life can come close to comparing. He says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. A holy, royal honor only he can bestow, and he will bestow on every believer. Which should motivate us to go deeper now to get closer to that throne today to live a life sold out for the king with whom we will sit in his kingdom as it says later in chapter 5:10 and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our god and they shall reign on the earth so church are we living that way Are we sold out for Christ or have we sold out to this affluent culture that we live in? Spiritually tepid, spiritually dead. These are the questions Christ's messages are in our text. And they call, they're a call not to condemn us, but to awaken us to renewed love for God and for the things that God loves, which is his great concern. And so as we leave the second section of the book of Revelation, I encourage all of us to take some time this week to review what we've read and to really consider Christ's concerns and take his challenge seriously to repent and have ears to hear what he says. That's what he calls for at the end of every message to each of the seven churches. He who has an ear, let him here. Let's pray that we'll get the message. Lord, we thank you again for your word, and we thank you for the comforting truths of your word, the comforting promises we've seen here of the gospel, of our righteousness in Christ, and the final rewards we will experience in your presence. But Lord, we also are thankful for the convicting parts of your word and surely that was the case today and so give us ears to hear and give us a will to not only be hearers but doers of the word and oh lord fan into flame in our hearts a deeper love for you for the things you love so that we might not be a church that is lukewarm but is vibrant and active and full of love for you and for others we pray this in jesus name Amen.